Malcolm Holmline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations with us Fridays for the weekly update here at JM and the AM. Mr. Holmline, welcome back to JM and the AM. Uh, to you. I guess we should start with a refuah shlema, a speedy recovery wish, a wish for a full speedy recovery to the President of the United States who has been diagnosed with covid and the COVID-like symptoms, and uh, we wish the president the very best. No matter what part of the political picture or spectrum one is on, it is appropriate to wish a uh, speedy recovery to the president. I'm sure you agree. I certainly do, and one always has to think of the consequences, and uh, we, we should wish everybody well, no matter what. But when the president uh, is ill, it at a time of instability, to further instability and the prospect that uh, what will be entailed if uh, he were in any way unable to fulfill his responsibilities would be very serious. Right, 100%, and uh, uh, we wish him the best. Uh, the aftermath of his of his trip, and it, obviously last week we spoke a lot about the trip to Israel, uh, but now we have a chance to talk about the uh, trip to Saudi Arabia. Just practically speaking, because the, the, the question was, would he ask for you know a, an accelerated production of oil and things like that, that in the long run, one would suspect might help the American economy? With, with everything that was going on, the controversy surrounding the trip, practically speaking, did he obtain the results he was looking for? Uh, that's a very good question because we really don't know a lot of the results of what was discussed privately. There are all sorts of hints of the various um, potential increases uh, later on. But, you know, the the, um, the fact that people can assess it, a lot of people have assessed it and said, well, he didn't achieve much with Saudi Arabia, that they um, uh, gave him uh, a cool re- reception compared to the very warm reception he got in Israel. And if, again, if you look at, you know, the comments he made when he got there and the other things, he doesn't have that relationship with Saudi Arabia. And he made very harsh statements against Saudi Arabia in, in, in the past year. So these things all come back to roost. There, there were very disturbing announcements made by the UAE that they would be sending back their ambassador to Iran, that the, both the Saudi Arabia and UAE rejected the idea that was floated up an Arab NATO or enhanced uh, coalition and coalescence that even King Abdullah, I re- reported on the program a couple of weeks ago, hinted at, and then he retracted. Uh, so that that, that is not uh, happening. But the fact that you had a successful meeting of the GCC without an outcome, meaning that the countries convened, you had Iraq there as well. Um, and I think that the intention there was to try and wean them away from it and off of their total dependency on Iran even though that he represents a, a government that adopted a, a law that the any contact with an Israeli is subject to a long prison term or the death penalty. Mm-hmm. Uh, so whether you, the how the Khashoggi issue was handled, how all these other things, I mean, those were private discussions. You know, the, the Saudis, some sources said he didn't raise it. President Biden said he did raise it, uh, you know, this is always the result when you have quiet uh, diplomacy, uh, and some of these things should be done quietly. Saudi Arabia is an important ally right now. The situation in the Gulf is very serious. The fact that Putin and Erdogan were in Iran at the time, 
and talked about enhanced cooperation and both in economic and other terms is, uh, you know, is very unsettling. Uh, I was going to ask you about that meeting. As, as you said, Russia, Iran, and Turkey were together uh, in Tehran, uh, represented by their leaders. Um, is this a is this a timely coincidence after the presidential visit and the overture to Saudi Arabia, etc., or is this simply part of the Russian game plan? These things are rarely fully, uh, un, you know, uh, unscheduled or uh, it, it, events that just by coincidence take place. This was Putin's second visit since abroad since he since the invasion of Ukraine, and it shows how important this relationship is. And you had the signing of a deal by the National Iranian Oil Company and Russia's Gazprom, um, a multi-billion-dollar memorandum of understanding on energy investment, and there was also um, they wanted specific endorsements. Russia did of, of the Ukraine by the Iran supreme leader. Uh, there were other statements that were made, which were things that he wanted. But uh, I think Syria was a major issue, and of great concern is was there an understanding that Russia would no longer permit the overflights by Israel? As you know, Israel carried out an attack in Syria um, on a Syrian army base just uh, the day after I think the the meeting broke up, and. The uh, you can't compartmentalize the challenges from Russia and China. They are expanding their influence. This Russia, despite all the tremendous burden, they are exporting oil through Iran. Iran is making a lot of money from that. They they there was a train with 300 carloads that crossed the border from Iran into Iran from Russia on its way to India. And they make money on all of uh, all of these things, in addition to trying to be a united front against the uh, United States. And I think the Gulf countries reflect their concerns about and try to hedge their bets. Um, and I think the fact that Russia and China, on the one hand, are, are getting together and doing what they're doing, um, and uh, when you see the NATO declaring China one of its strategic priorities for the first time, what does that mean, strategic priority for NATO? So it means that, they have, that this, that a lot of their resources will be directed at limiting Chinese uh, expansionism through the Roman Belt and through other means, certainly on a military level to perhaps raise the, the concerns in the China Sea and, and particularly about Taiwan. Uh, you see Nancy Pelosi wants to go, and I think the president is not going to let her. So we're very sensitive to Chinese reactions uh, to everything in China, you know, plays its own interests. And there there are dozens of cargo flights to Russia from the IRGC, and, you know, they're making a lot of money out of it. There's growing dissension in the country because the money doesn't come to the people of Iran. They never get to see the benefits. Um, so it's really a hatred of the United States that's keeping all of these placed people together and the global alliance system, and, and why I emphasize the uh, various maneuvers, the naval, joint naval maneuvers of six, seven, eight countries, the maneuvers in Israel, the air maneuvers, the joint uh, missile defense systems, all these things are posed a direct challenge to, to Iran and its hegemonic designs, but also to Russia's designs and, and China. And Russia and China are negotiating their own 20-year comprehensive cooperation uh, 
agreement that updates one that was signed more than 20 years ago. There's a lot of moving parts to this. So it's and unfair. There, there were also, by the way, just one thing, that they're working together in South America. And I, well, I've warned about this, as you know, for years, talking about the, 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 how government after government in the last year have fallen to extremists and hostile regimes. But in the meantime, they are working together, including Turkey, to explain, to ex, uh, expand their activities and influence, not 8,000 miles away, but an hour off the Florida coast. Yeah, understood. Um, so to, it's it's fair to portray Washington as as um, dropping the ball then on the China piece because obviously if NATO is reacting and 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 you know coming up with some type of game plan, I'm assuming the U.S. is quarterbacking that game plan. Is, would that be fair to say? Absolutely. I think that the, the president has actually been put a great deal of emphasis on the uh, on China. Uh, the question is, what is effective? And we're not about to go to war with China. We shouldn't be going to war with China. Right. We can, though, challenge there that we've given them a free hand to expand their activities to, um, uh, you know, entrench themselves in ever-increasing uh, areas. The uh, the fact that, that we, we should be looking more at how we help the countries between China and Russia and, and Europe meaning the Central Asian countries, which we do very little uh, for. And Erdogan comes in and, and tries to carve out a critical role for himself. He wants to be an arbiter, but he also has a lot of self-interest that he's um, uh, looking at. And just think that, that he's selling armed drones to Ukraine, right. uh, but, and hasn't, but, but hasn't imposed any sanctions on Kremlin. Now Iran is going to be selling the drones to Russia. Hey, what does it say about Russia's drone capacity? We've seen what's happened to their to the, a lot of the equipment that they sent to Ukraine not being uh, very effective, and the um, the fact that they have to turn to Iran. Uh, for these weapons is is a statement in and of itself. That's why the Turkey piece to this is always confusing to a guy like me because uh, you, know, you you see you see the overtures that they make, including to countries like Israel and the fact that they want to, and, and Ukraine, by the way, great example as you just cited. Uh, but at the same time, they're meeting with Russia. They're part of this. I, I don't want to say alliance, but they certainly have an interest in uh, in in uh, you know in maintaining a friendship or whatever you want to call it, diplomatic relations with Russia and Iran. So they, they're sort of like this. I don't want to say hybrid, but they're sort of like a two-headed monster when it comes to this stuff. Well, he also remember Turkey wants to go after the Kurds. They did carry out an operation uh, against in Kurdistan, and it, there were big demonstrations uh, against them in in Iraq. Uh, in Baghdad, demonstration against Turkey. Uh, Erdogan, who also faces tremendous economic pressure, internal dissension against him, uh, he looks to be perhaps the mediator between Russia and the Ukraine. Right now, perhaps the only guy who can do it. Um, he has hosted two rounds of unsuccessful negotiations between them. Uh, but he, he is pushing for a new new freedom to move against the, the PKK in uh, northern Syria, which requires at least Russia's acquiescence um, to because there are Russian troops in the area. But m more than that, I think that they, um, they're looking at getting the grain shipments uh, released in the Black Sea. They're looking at uh, many other issues um, 
Russia has uh, leverage, but the, uh, the biggest leverage they have is that a country like Egypt, for instance, is the world's largest importer of wheat, gets more than 70% of it from Russia and the Ukraine. And um, Turkey, I think, gets 80% of its supplies from uh, Turkey, from uh, Ukraine and Russia. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a very complicated picture. You know, people look at it on the surface, but there are layers upon layers that have implications here. It's sort of like they, they have to maintain good relations with everybody as they start up with everybody. <laughs> like, they have an interest. In, 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 he has an interest in maintaining good relations with so many of these countries. But the, exactly. But at the same... And, and that's all that they pursue is their, their interests. I mean, that's what matters. And he still has his Muslim Brotherhood agenda. Uh, they, they, they move ahead. Russia, Iran is moving ahead all the time on its nuclear program. Um, they're arming, they're stepping up the arming of their um, boats in, in the Persian Gulf to, to challenge uh, the coalescence, coalescence of uh, naval powers on the, against them. And the, um, you know, w- w- we do have to do something quickly to, to put pressure on to release the millions of tons of grain that are waiting to get shipped right. out, people are going to die and are dying because they don't have food, especially if you look at what happens in Africa and Asia and other places, and we will be impacted as well. question is when, and we just don't know how many months down the road that is. Well, I think if people go to the store and look at the prices of stuff, you right. know, many countries are working hard, including Israel, to right. keep the price of bread down. That's the beginning, but that's not a shortage, but that's the beginning. Right. Well, right. prices go up because you have that, and well, you have general increase in prices with inflation. But bread is the critical thing because that's what people go to the streets on when right. they can't buy bread and basics. Understood. Um, what is with this uh, Russian demand that the Jewish agency close its office in Russia? Uh, so this is a, a very complicated issue because we can't get the exact truth. There were statements issued saying that that they aren't closing. There definitely is a series of hearings going on that uh, in which a Jewish agency is being asked to explain its activities. But clearly there's, there is more to it. One Israeli newspaper reported that they were banned and another one reported they were not banned. And the Jewish agency put out statements saying it's not true that their operations are continuing, but clearly they are being investigated that this could be Russia's answer to Israel's support for Ukraine, that the, it, it will certainly impact Aliyah uh, and the processing of people. As you know, I think this year 16,000 Jews came from Russia already, <laughs> and and the immigration is is increasing, uh, as it is from Beirut and and, uh, and Ukraine. But but Russia was uh, one of the side effects that people wasn't anticipated early on, and. Um, and about 80% of the people who have come from these countries are saying they want to stay now in Israel. We're not talking about those who, who you know, just did it as a refuge, who may not be Jewish, and I also want the right of return. But the the if, if the Jewish agency is unable to function there, that will make it much more difficult. Uh, maybe the Russians are just uh, finally coming to grips with the fact that they don't want people to leave, and <laughs> the Jewish agency facilitates their citizens leaving. <laughs> Well, there are people are leaving, especially wealthy people, those who can afford to leave more readily. Um, but you have a lot of elderly Jews. You have others there that 
You know, it's not so easy for them just to pick up and, and go. Yes. And many in the beginning didn't think this was going to last a year and be stuck in this battle for so long and that the toll would be uh, so high. But at the same time, they they have very strict enforcement in Russia. You don't see uh, very visible demonstrations. But the all the accounts of polling stuff shows that there's growing, very fast growing dissatisfaction. It's America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program. Heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio around the world of web at NachumSiegel.com and the NachumSiegel Network and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. Malcolm Honline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. By the way, this Jewish reporter visiting Mecca, this episode reminds us that while Israel makes sure to open up holy sites to everybody and doesn't restrict anybody from doing anything, basically... Uh, some might argue with that, but you get my point. Uh, it's not like that everywhere in the world. I think it's an important reminder. Well, this is uh, Mecca has always been a closed city, and I think this reporter did a very foolish thing. And um, you know, if he himself wanted to go and just see it, it's one thing to to write it up, and to write it up as a a great achievement on his part was not only immature, but it was very counterproductive. It aroused great anger in Saudi Arabia. Look, the relationship is, is sensitive enough. We still don't have massive buy-in in the Arab populations. It's changing. It's better. Certainly UAE, it's much better. In, in Saudi Arabia, it's, it's, the numbers are increasingly more positive towards uh, relationships with Israel and Jews coming. But a thing like this sets it back. And it's, it's it's immature and it's it's counterproductive and and people who it's not the only instance we have of this that uh, doing this can do a great deal of long term uh, damage and become a basis on which those who oppose the warming relationships can act against enhancing them. So it's very unfortunate, and he apologizes for it and all that. But if you saw the videos and everything you see, it was it was like a teenager, you right. know, celebrating the fact that uh, he was able to steal something from a candy store. Right, like he got the British officials, uh, the British guards to laugh at Buckingham Palace, that type of... Uh, yeah, exactly. That, that type of victory. <clears throat> what do you think of the Nikki Haley um, um, hint that <laughs> that the next president of the United States, she, according to her, she will uh, rip up the uh, agreement if there is one between Biden and Iran. What do you think of her prospects for 2024? Well, I was there for the speech because I, I was honored that same night I got the Defender of Israel or award, I think. Mazal Tov. Award. Thank Mazal you, thank you. Uh, no, but it was, uh, frankly, for people who have never experienced a Kufi Christians United for Israel conference, you cannot imagine what, what it is like to see the Islamists, the warmth, the singing Hatikva, all of these people from one side of this huge conference center to the other, but they all know the words, yeah. <laughs> and they they sing, uh, they sang Hebrew songs. They they uh, pledge their affinity to Israel, and they don't missionize, and they don't. Uh, in, in fact, they forbid uh, missionizing, uh, targeting Jews. <laughs> they have their beliefs, but they uh, they respond so amazingly. Uh, you have to experience it to get it. And, and actually, there were more yarmulkes there than I've seen in the past. People who come there because it's it's so encouraging and, and reassuring. There are eleven and a half million members of Kufi, and they add a hundred thousand members a month uh, to the organizations. Um, various uh, divisions and, and parts. They have youth. They have campus, and they're very outspoken. They go to the hill. They don't take any prisoners. They really 
argue and make the case. And Nikki Haley is amongst their favorites, and they have her in most years, too. And she's, uh, you know, she gave a very political speech. It was broadcast, you know, the whole, all of this is uh, shown on television, and they have many people who, who watch it and watch it later. And so there were clearly hints in her speech, nothing explicit, nothing um, more than, than that, but that was enough to, to at least get it on the, on the record and to get people's tongues wagging about it. I mean, imagine that, uh, you know, a, a, a speaker there feels the advantage of mentioning, you know, canceling the Iran deal. Imagine being in a crowd like that that appreciates it to the degree that they do. Uh, and talks about Jerusalem United and talks about yeah. the fact that we don't, we can't put a consulate in Jerusalem or shouldn't be going there without a American, the Israeli flag in Jerusalem. I mean, she hits all the points, the sensitive points, and that crowd reacts yeah. very there's, strongly. There's a crowd that's so receptive to those messages is unbelievable. By the way, the Glen Ivy win in Maryland's fourth, it, it, it reassures us a little bit that... Uh, you know, when the pro-Israel community try, gets behind and supports a candidate, progress can be made. Yes, it's, you know, there's new tactics, and APAC has changed its focus, others, because it's it's an addressing a, a reality, and especially when they're pitted against J Street putting a million dollars against the, the candidate APAC, and in many of the, these races, uh, they're on opposite sides, and uh, in this case, a lot of money was spent, millions of dollars, uh, but it's it's the defense against the the in, in uh, support that they get from various other maybe even outside sources, but certainly various other sources that can pour a lot of money into to it. You know, everybody talks about Soros and the DA races. Right. Um, you know, if people are willing to put the money in, then they get the results, and we then pay the price. So these races are very important. They send an important message. And and I think it gives cover for those who do want to support Israel, but are intimidated or afraid because then the opposition becomes much more vocal and and organizes against them. So we have to stand by our friends, and and one way of doing it is political contributions. Two is political support. Three, getting out the vote, and that's really critical. If people don't go out and vote, then the results will be clear. And we have some races in New York City, which are very hot congressional races. It will be very important if people who will not stand up and support Israel get elected. Yeah, no question about that. Uh, I'm actually a resident in, uh, in, in, in the brand new New York 10th District. Big election coming up August 23rd. Right. And, as some and people don't even know that and when I mention it to them, they look at you blankly. What election? You know, yeah. in November is no the big election in New York because of the political setup here, especially in New York City, is that the Democratic primary is usually the election. Yeah. Uh, I think the gubernatorial election is an exception. There are other elections statewide where it's different, and New York will be watched. And someone actually said to me last week about that seat, about the New York 10th, uh, they said, a progressive's going to win this election. It may as well be a progressive that likes Israel. So now we have a new category. We've got, we've got you know, a new category, a, a progressive, someone who aligns with the squad on many issues, but yet, it, but yet the pro-Israel community, political community, will tell you that they are reliable when it comes to voting for Israel. So 
We we need well, all- as opposed to somebody who is not good on Israel. Yeah. I still aligns with them. So correct. Yes, it's Correct. it's very important. I don't, I don't like the term progressive, but right. Well, you don't know because I don't think they're progressive. Yeah, I'm utilizing the media. Supporting Israel is progressive. Yeah, utilizing the media's term for them. Uh, yeah. The um, uh, but again, it's you know I, I don't want to call it lesser of two evils. That's not fair uh, because I don't know these candidates personally. But the the point is that this category now exists. Um, we have to come to a reality, I was told, that this is the direction of New York State and New York City. I should say New York City. Of New York City. And uh, if, if this is, in fact, the direction, at least someone representing that district should be somebody who has a good voting record or a good uh, a political record when it comes to Israel. It's a very interesting uh, and different time. Speaking of elections, by the way, there is an election coming up in Israel. I know, I know, that, it's, I know that it's way too early for this, but I did find it interesting that the religious Zionists under Ben Gvir do have 13 seats at least in the polls at this point. They may be a bigger player down the road than uh, than, than uh, we thought originally. Absolutely. And uh, the, um, whether they can be brought into coalitions right. may become a mute question and may become very critical yeah. to coalitions. It's still very early to predict what, what will happen there. As you know, it's very mercurial, and still the margin is very slim to get to 61 votes. But that is one of the phenomena that people are watching and seeing old faces come back, even on the extreme left. And, you know, some parties that are likely not even to make the cut, um, including the former prime minister Bennett's uh, own party. So it's very interesting to see how the numbers will will fluctuate. Yeah, that's for sure. And watching the Labor Party in the polls at six mandates is really unbelievable because if there was one thing about israel and we saw this so many times over the last few decades is that the major parties the old established major parties always had some influence on the political scene and now it looks like uh, from their example that it's just not the case anymore do you agree with shurat hadin that uh, the united nations human rights council should be labeled as anti-semitic it labeled itself anti-semitic it is, its activities are so far beyond the fringe. The fact that Israel is the only country subject to a, a, a separate item on the agenda and the condemnation to condemn Israel more than all the other countries. And you have, you know, Venezuela and the Irans and Iraqs and all of them sitting in judgment of Israel. The, the, uh, I absolutely believe that, uh, you know, you, President Trump pulled out. We went back in, thought that we could balance it. I don't the balancing taking place, not because they don't try. The United States does speak out in the council, but there's no way we can overcome the, the numbers there. We have to use our leverage, and in particular, this commission of inquiry, which is open-ended, completely funded, will have a big staff, in addition to do committees on the Palestinians that operate with millions of dollars of UN money every year for decades, you know, and all the, the only purpose is to target Israel. They don't do anything to benefit Palestinians or anybody else. And now you have this open uh, commission of inquiry, which will be free to investigate anything and everything and go to the uh, ICC, International Criminal Court. That's the goal, is to label Israel an apartheid state, is to, to, to come out with the conclusions. Then they do it under the guise of the UN, and people say, well, that's respectable. It's the United Nations. No, it isn't. And we should make sure to withdraw our funding for this commission of inquiry. Any money, the percentage that we give should be, should be blocked. And, uh, and we have to take a stronger stand because it does have an impact. I know people don't think so. People generally just dismiss it. They don't see an article or that they don't 
you know, they don't even notice it. It's very important. You know, the, the incidents that took place now with the, uh, you saw the Mossad film showing them interviewing or interrogating somebody in Tehran again, mm-hmm. and so much so that the Iranians had to acknowledge it and, and comment at a very high level about it. But that easily could become then the subject of the Commission of Inquiry, sure. not because they're dealing with people who are, are planning and who announced their plan to annihilate the state and violate all standards of the United Nations and of human rights on a constant basis. Half the executions in the world going on in Iran, they don't get called before the Human Rights Council. All the persecution, prosecutions that are going on, they don't get called. They sit there in judgment at times, and, and, and you know, Venezuela and all of the others joining them in uh, at, at the United Nations, so Israel will never have a fair shake there, and I think it's it's um, uh, it's it's imperative that people understand what happens. It's not to dismiss everything the United Nations does. Uh, I think a tougher stand is really called for. Uh, the Mahmoud Abbas visit to Paris, uh, so the analysis or the conjecture was that he wants the EU to uh, take a more prominent role as broker of Middle East peace. It's funny, maybe this happened when basically you know President Trump put an end to all this, but I, mean, I, I don't even look at the EU as a as a uh, effective broker at this point, especially if the U.S. support, again, under Trump much less than now, if the U.S. support is not there. Is this at all a realistic plan on Abbas's part? We don't know what Abbas really wants. I think Abbas just wants to live out his term, doesn't want to make any concessions, is not interested in negotiations. Um, in fact, we saw the EU Foreign Minister's Council, the, the Association Council, renewed after more than 10 years, I think, that they haven't uh, uh, met, that they voted. This is the 27 EU Foreign Ministers to strengthen economic diplomatic ties with Israel. And this coming at the same time as uh, Abbas's re- outreach to to them, and I think uh, this means that they, Israel can benefit its citizens, can benefit from uh, the relationships there. It's still their number one trading partner, uh, so anything that happens in the EU is is significant. Uh, there is a great enthusiasm about supporting Abbas. It's not like the old days, you know, the Palestinian issue, even in the Arab world, and you saw that the Saudis supposedly said, well, we can't have diplomatic relations until it's a two-state solution, I think, buys them time. I can tell you that, speaking to Saudi leaders in the past, there isn't great enthusiasm about it. They, they feel that their money has been stolen, that it's a kleptocracy, and uh, that's true of many other Arab leaders, uh, because they don't feel that the Palestinians are ready to make the decisions and sit down and negotiate. And I think the administration tried to balance it, it the, during the visit, um, but the, 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 there isn't the, the groundswell of support that one would see. There is still sympathy, and it's still an issue, and those who dismiss it are, are wrong. It becomes a popular rallying call uh, for people, to, for leaders to say, you know, that they, they, they use the Palestinian issue, they exploit it, they don't help it, they're not sending money there, they're not helping the people and projects and things by and large. So... You know, you have to see beneath the surface. A lot of this is show. He's in his 18th year of a four-year term. That's a much bigger <laughs> issue in the in the Palestinian territories. The fact that they don't have elections and that they don't have another leader that they can turn to, they think will will um, would win and be decisive. The fact is that Hamas would likely win an election, not in Gaza alone, in the West Bank, yeah, in Judea, in, in 
that they're in Judea and Samaria, areas that uh, under Palestinian Authority control. Yep, that's the reality at this point. Uh, finally, did you think the uh, prosecutor or judge or whoever's in that video was a little too tough on Netanyahu when it came to the Mayron testimony? I think that generally it's open season on Netanyahu, but, but this he, was, he, handled, this, he handles himself well. I agree, uh, but this was so I mean, over the top, it seemed. Yeah, they. but so are some of the other the the, the, um, the cases that people have assessed it as being, you know, very targeted and stuff. But, uh, yes, it was, it was very harsh, and, you know, people are all avoiding responsibility for, for what took place. Oh, that's for sure. I think it's ridiculous to think that the prime minister, though, really knows the details of the specific security arrangements. Right. Uh, he said he dealt with the COVID thing because that was a national uh, priority issue that they, he was addressing. Right. But uh, I don't think he, 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 even a governor, or in some cases or others, would be responsible here for local security arrange, arrangements for an event. And now they've taken some remedial measures. But as you saw, even that broke down this year. Any comment on the uh, resignation of the Italian prime minister? He's, he was a friend, and he was um, that instability in Europe is not good. For anybody, right. and Italy, you know, was competing always with Israel about who has more governments and whose governments last shorter. Uh, Israel got ahead a little bit, so I think they wanted to catch <laughs> up. But <laughs> uh, but it's um, uh, you know you, you see in, in France that the uh, how unstable Macron's coalition is. The fact that he got a minority in the parliament, you see that. Other countries in Europe, uh, England, the government falling apart uh, with Johnson's um, resignation. So this instability, coupled with the economic crisis that they're facing and the uh, and, and the extreme heat, all it could be a, a, a uh, unpleasant coalescence of events that could be very unsettling. And then anti-Semites always take advantage, and anti-Israel forces will always take advantage of that. Understood. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, have a wonderful Shabbos. We'll speak in Mir Hashem next week. You too. Be well. Have a good Shabbos and good Chodesh. Malcolm Holmline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents and Major American Jewish Organizations with us Fridays, 8.40 a.m. Eastern Time, here for the weekly update at JM in the AM.